BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home, the place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. Hit the subscribe button so you don't miss the updates on the great writers we have coming up over the next few weeks. And if you want to see photos of the studio and the cocktails getting made, check out my Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And please leave a comment. I want to hear about the writers you want to hear on this show. I've been getting a lot of great booking ideas from you guys. Welcome to Dedicated with Doug Brunt. You have just gained access to an exclusive insider's look at the lives and works of some of your favorite authors and hear conversations with the world's greatest writers as they discuss their writing lifestyle, creative process, latest work, and behind-the-scenes revelations. Welcome to a special episode of Dedicated. I'm your host, Doug Brunt. As listeners of this show know, since episode one back in the fall of 2022, I end each episode, right when my guest and I are at least one or two drinks in, with a series of quick, fun questions that I call the lightning round. Some of these questions are for every guest, like the books you're reading now to recommend to listeners, or your least attended book event ever. Others are tailored to specific guests, like Rick Springfield's thoughts on the best rock band frontman ever. Our executive producer, Mike Paco, has compiled a best of the lightning round, drawing mainly from our season one guests. So please enjoy and please leave comments with your thoughts and suggestions for us and have a happy new year. Now, here is Lee Child with his thoughts on who Reacher's love interest might be, perhaps a certain former cable news anchor. All right, this last question is going to be important to all Reacher fans out there. And his love life is always a matter of speculation. And, uh, you know, he's, he's in and out of a few romances over the course of the books. Who would Reacher's celebrity crush be? Or not, it, maybe crush isn't the right word for Reacher. That doesn't seem exactly Reacher. But who would, who would Reacher go for? Well, Reacher loves smart women. Um, and, of course, he's not averse if they're good looking, too. So... I think, you know, they're on our TV every night. There's a, there's a range of uh, especially political commentators who are good-looking, but also clearly, you know, smart, intelligent, well-informed. And he wouldn't necessarily have to even agree with them. He would just be fascinated being in their company. And so, yeah, you know, watch uh, watch any of the, the cable shows with the uh, the interviews and the politicians and all of that, and, and one of those anchors. Okay. Reacher would... Reacher. That's funny. Well, you can tell Reacher from me that from personal experience, I recommend it. Yeah, I was thinking it wouldn't be a Kardashian type, and it wouldn't either be like a, a Ronda Rousey MMA thing. I, I was I was wondering maybe the uh, the Finnish prime minister might be yeah, smart and no. attractive. Yeah, she is something else that uh, lets or, her hair down a little. Well, the New Zealand 
one, um, Jacinda Ardern, who, yeah, very accomplished, very smart. Because uh, Reach's problem is that he falls for smart women. And the smarter the woman is, the more they understand, yeah, this is going to be great for 24 hours, but there's no future in it. And so Reacher is lazily regarded as a love him and leave him type. Mm-hmm. And that's not true. It's them that throw him out. It's them that say, this ain't going to work, bud. And uh, he has to put up with that. That's interesting. I, so it could be a sort of a classic bodyguard tale. He could get on a security detail for one of these young, attractive prime ministers and then yeah, I mean, there's a, throw him out. There's a... I mean, obviously, a lot of stories there. People have people have done those, but you feel it. I mean, I I don't necessarily have bodyguards or anything, but you 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 go around with publicists, and there's something about being inside that bubble, where you know, day after day, city after city, you you're with some the same person looking after you. Mm-hmm. You do have this strange intimacy with them, that would make it very easy to um, to get very close. Yeah. Jennifer Egan shares some wisdom. How about one more piece of advice for really on anything, on parenting or writing or anything? You know, I'll give another piece of writing advice, uh, which is that I I have found that being willing to write badly has been a real asset for me because this feeling that the writing has to be good is so stymieing. And the difference between an empty page and a page that's full of stuff that may not be that great, uh, but but it's it exists, is all the difference in the world. So what I often say to people who who want to get into the habit of writing is just just write, write anything, and then mm-hmm. improve it. I think this feeling of sort of waiting for the good stuff or almost feeling like you're performing as you write is is such a hindrance. I mean, the great thing about writing is it really is private. No one ever has to see it. It's actually not a performance. And so that's a great asset that we have as writers. And, and I think the willingness to write often and badly is is often a way to get work done. Oh, that's great advice. You have to get out there and get started. I play the underrated, overrated game with David Duchovny. Um, all right, so overrated or underrated? I'll name a couple music acts. Okay. And not not a knock. This is just like not a knock on any band, just your personal taste relative to reception by the mm-hmm. general public. ACDC. Uh, underrated. Underrated, meaning you like them. Uh, the Who. I don't think you can rate them high enough. So I don't. I, I guess they're underrated. Um, yeah. The The Kinks. Kinks are underrated too. Um, you know, some those riffs are so undeniable uh, and smart lyrics. I think in many ways they they didn't have a musical identity like the other bands did because they mm-hmm. they rocked hard, but they also did like a musical English, very musical kind of a thing. So, mm, I think critics uh, didn't know what to make of them in a way. So I'd say underrated too. Yeah, I love the King. Whenever I'm on '80s on eight, you know, on the serious thing in the car all the time. When Kings come on, there's there's so many good ones that uh, well, Lola are underappreciated. I think because Lola yeah. was about a you know drag queen, and I you know that that was a Planet of the Apes reveal in a song. It's like, oh my god, Lola's a guy. You know, it's it was, a guy, just, <laughs> right? <laughs> I, I was ten years old. You know, it's like I didn't know that happened. It was real education. Taylor Swift. Well, I don't really know her stuff so well, and I. I I think she's a really good songwriter, but 
she'd have to be overrated because she's so popular. Yeah, I mean, it's like she's almost yeah. nothing like her. I mean, even Madonna, she seems to be uh, going beyond yeah. all that. Kid Rock. Yeah. Kid Rock? Well, you know, that, that first song was great. It was Ba Wada Ba, whatever it's mm-hmm. called. That, that, was, that was a great song, and I love that. But um, I'd say he's both overrated and underrated. I think he's had a couple of really, really, you know, this like the Sweet Home Alabama remix that he did. You know, mm-hmm. he's talented, but... I saw him live once and he ran, it was one of the best, he's one of the best performers out there. He plays like 10 different instruments. He was buzzing around the stage. It was, couldn't believe how much energy was going on up there. I think that's what, I think that's what's the truth about him is he's a real musician, you know? So I'd I'd say he's underrated as a musician and probably overrated in terms of sales. All right. Appropriately rated. Maybe that's an option too. How about James Taylor? I love sweet baby James. Come on. Part of my, part of my childhood. Uh, great voice, underrated guitar player, very simple, underrated guitar player. Um, great songwriter. Yeah. Uh, I think he's, he's, he's properly appreciated. Okay. Only two more. Justin Timberlake, the other JT. <laughs> the other JT. Well, that says it all, doesn't it? Um, maybe I shouldn't say that actually. Like there can be only <laughs> one. It's like the Highlander. <laughs> I think, uh, and again, this is a guy who I think is really talented. Um, and some of those songs I'll listen to when they come on, but it, I, I'm not going to go home and put on a Justin Timberlake album to listen to. That's not really a knock on him, but um, I will acknowledge his, he's, he's a super talented performer. He can dance, he can sing. He's a, he's, yeah. a, he's a blue-eyed soul guy, you know. And I love like Daryl Hall is another guy in that in that category. I think Daryl Hall is really underrated as a yeah yeah. A it's it's an age thing. Like we come back, the the music that made the biggest impression on me was my teens. I, I loved the Kinks and and a lot of these other rock bands. Justin Timberlake, I just sort of I I got here too soon for that, you know. And I'm, I'm sure if you talk to some production. twenty-five-year-old, they're like. Who are the kinks? You know, I love James yeah. Timberlake. So. Yeah, yeah. I right. mean, they... Last one, John McEnroe as a musician only. <laughs> he's got a, have I you ever seen him rating. play? I yeah, have, right. He, he hasn't even got a rating yet. He's got to work on that. <laughs> um, does he have original music? I, I feel like... I, well, actually, that's a good question. I don't know. I know he's in a band and he plays and he's done gigs. I don't know if they've actually recorded an album. Yeah, I mean... I think he's a good musician. I think he's a good guitar player. Uh, have you seen him play? Sure. I have, but it was before I played guitar, so I don't know. I I went to uh, Wimbledon like before I was well known. It was probably nineteen eighty nine, and I saw at the Hard Rock Cafe uh, McEnroe got up with Mats Vilander, and they oh, nice. they kind of had a band. They kind of had a band together. They both played guitar, and uh, you know it seemed like he could he could be up there, you know, certainly. So he's probably a really good guitar player at this point. All right, so let's go with underrated then. Marlon James gives a Jamaican perspective on the differences between New York and Minnesota. Most glaring differences between living in Minnesota and New York. Glaring differences. Well, as the audience knows, you're you're mainly in Brooklyn. I'm mainly in Brooklyn now, but um, things about Minnesota. I feel I can back in Minnesota without the fear that I will die tonight. <laughs> Which is how I feel when I'm back in New York. I've just have to to back in New York is to just come to terms with death. 
I'm yeah. amazed people do it and here with these city I am, bikes. I'm like, amazed I love they do it too. I, um, I, I, I don't know. Um, so there's that. Um, you know, because I don't think about it when I'm biking in, in Minnesota, we just have so many bike lanes. And, um, you know, one of the great things that Minnesota did or still does is that whenever a train line kind of dies, it has turned into a bike lane. So you can really get around the state without never seeing a car. What, well, I mean, it's going to be like two degrees there tomorrow. Yeah, I mean, what, do people bike even in those temperatures? Oh, I was an all-rounder. I back through the entire thing. Oh my gosh! And you're a Jamaican. How I are know. you adjusting yeah, to this climate? That, well, better question is, how do I adapt back to Jamaica? I right. don't, because now I'm there. I'm like, oh yeah, I'll take this heat. That's and they're like, what do you mean you? I'm like, I can't, I can't live here anymore. Are Minnesotans nicer on the average, or they're way nicer on the average? But don't be, you know, that can be misleading. Uh, Minnesotans are friendly. They're not necessarily open. Okay. So, case in point. I'm biking. I have bike accidents all the time. You know, I, I mean, I'm sure I've broken nearly all my fingers now. Um, if I have a bike accident, 10 people are going to stop and help me and make sure I'm all right, make sure I'm good and so on. Not a single one is going to give me their number mm-hmm. to follow up. Uh, and, and that's it. It's, it's We're friendly, but we're not open. Also, How to go down in New York if you have an accident? I mean, you know, this is the thing about New Yorkers is that New Yorkers aren't New Yorkers are open even if they're not really friendly. Like I think that um if that happens, I think that person's probably going to follow up. Mm-hmm. I mean, so it's not going to follow up. Yeah. Um yeah, but I mean there are other things. Like you know, living in Minnesota, I am literally appalled by how wussy New Yorkers are about winter. It's like it's 40 degrees. I wear shorts. <laughs> Yeah, it's true. People and like you know, the threat of snow is coming. Oh my like, god! There, there'll be no water left on the shelves. I know. And, you know, all the supplies are gone. Heaven forbid, four inches of snow hit Manhattan. It's a bloodbath. Yeah. yeah. I'm like, I've taught class during 28 inches of snow. Oh my gosh. Yeah, a student didn't show up. I'm like, dude, you failed my class. It's like, what do you mean? It's like everybody else was here. <laughs> Amor tolls with some thoughts on parenting advice and his least attended book event. Two tips in particular that I, I know you guys do. One is this sort of Tolls Cinema Night, a Sunday night at the cinema at the Tolls oh, yeah. House. And then the second would be your uh, sort of global cuisine selection for home cooking. Can you can you give tell folks those here about those two stories? Because I think they're just terrific parenting tips and fun uh, ideas to bring the family together. Yeah, so I'll, I'll, well, the, the movie thing that, that Doug is referencing is, and of course, my children are, I have a, ch- a child in college and a child is a, a senior in high school. So this goes back to when we were, they were much younger, you know, even, you know, six and eight and 10 and 12 and, you know, 14, 16, you know, but that was kind of we would have family movie, movie night. My spin on family movie night, uh, for what it's worth, was uh, it was not open for debate. So, so the, the, the movie was chosen by me. <laughs> in this case uh and uh and we would assemble when we'd have the movie and i would introduce it in kind of a a silly way but they would not want to know what it was until it began to run and what the reason that we did this it wasn't because i'm a megalomaniac or something or a dictatorial guy it's because when you i you know been in a situation when you have four people of different ages and different Mm -hmm. tastes debating what we're going to see the risk you run is you constantly are watching the same thing over and over that's mediocre because it's the only thing you can all settle on Mm -hmm. you know and so this was a way of trying to get my kids to look at things that that i thought were really entertaining and i was entertained by so you know we watched 
uh, you know, Errol Flynn's uh, Robin Hood from 1938, which is an amazing movie, you know, and they loved it. They would watch it over and over and over. Uh, and then, you know, we watch uh, the, you know, the P- uh, Peter Sellers Pink Panthers movies, which oh, they would watch great. over oh, and over and over. That's a great idea. I've got to do that one. Oh, my God. They love that. So, so you know, we would find, I'd find these things and, and, and then, you know, there are things sometimes we would talk about them or discuss them, but we'd all have a good time. We'd laugh and, you know, and, and every now and then. You know, I was trying to be very careful to pick things that, that would entertain the mitigation. But every now and then they'd be like, Dad, that was terrible, you know. <laughs> um, and so that's OK, too. Um, but so that was the, that's the one thing. But we it, my it did end up being that my kids because um, it was very eclectic what we ended up looking at. And it was spanned decades um, that they were like uh, they're they have a very open view on movies in yeah. a very interesting way. So the parallel story um, is which which uh, Doug raised. Is I do a lot of cooking in the family. My wife cooks too, though, and um, we were kind of at a we were bogged down, and you know we were sort of you know what are we going to cook this week? What am I going to shop for tomorrow? The kid, making the same things over and over. So we kind of made an agreement as a, as a team, and so we had a couple of years where we said, all right, Monday night it's Italian, you know, Tuesday night is Asia, uh, Wednesday night is America, you know, Thursday night is Latin, and uh, and. You know that's what we're gonna do and so and uh when it's italian you make an italian dish when it's asia it could be vietnamese it could be sushi it could be chinese food you know when it's latin it could be mexican it could be costa rican it could be spanish and by setting up that rule it was sort of like in advance you say okay okay tuesday's coming you know so we gotta get we gotta get a, a an asian dish in the roster and what we end up doing is going out and getting cookbooks from different countries and we started experimenting and what the amazing thing was, we, you know, my wife and I learned to cook a much broader uh, body of, of, of cuisine, but my kids who were quite young at the time, they, they were like eight and 10 when we were doing this, started doing this. Um, if you said to them two years later, what are your favorite 10 meals? There were seven out of the 10 came out of this experiment. Wow. Things we had never made before, they never tasted before. Um, and it was just sort of like they, and, and so like my kids are, are like, they want to go to you know, food trucks anywhere in the world. They want to go, you know, they'll eat anything. Um, and we had so much fun. And so that so I expanded my repertoire. So, oh, it's, yes. it's amazing to get the kids away from, you know, chicken nuggets yes. and mac and cheese. And the whites. So after, after you told me this story years ago, I came home that night and I was so inspired by it. I'm like, we're going to do this. And so we go home and I have in my library like this sort of classic library globe, you know, in my office. Oh, yeah. <laughs> nice. So I bring the family in. We're all five of us around the globe. And I spin it and I say to her all the time, like, just stop it. Like, press your finger on there and stop it. And Love we're going to cook something from wherever your finger is. And it landed on, like, Czech Republic or something. Like that right. Like, just something great. So I'm like, oh, <laughs> Jesus, what are they making? You know, I have no idea what that is. So I start, we start Googling dishes and we, like, so we, we try to make the, the thing that sounded the best. And it, and it, and it uh, it wasn't great, I have to say, and and so this thing only lasted like a couple more weeks that we Spinning even. Globe. I, I am resolved to come back to uh, developing more adventurous eaters in my family right now, away from pizza and mac and cheese. Least attended book event ever. Easy. The least attended book event ever was during Rules of Civility. I'm glad to say, so it was earlier in my career, <laughs> and uh, I'd hate I'd be sad if it was now. But uh, uh, and. Uh, it was at a point when Rules of Civility had been out for about a year, and it had been on the, the Los Angeles Times bestseller list for a year. For, for paperback enti- at this yeah, point. For the then, entire right? year. Yeah. And uh, so I went to Los Angeles, and, uh, and I went to go speak at the great independent bookstore, Book Soup, which is up in, uh, on, on Sunset Boulevard or, or there. And, uh, and the attendance 
was zero. And I got to say, zero is so much better than one. <laughs> right. Because you're uh, off the hook. after five minutes, you're like, guys, thanks for having me. We tried. We tried, but good luck, everybody. And I was out of that door. like, And so then you actually get in this funny thing where like- That's ten, funny. Zero ten, is better than yeah, one. 10 That's minutes true. before go time, you're like, you're like, shit, nobody's here and no one's going to be here. And so then like you're in a, you're going to this very interesting thing where you're watching the front door. And every time the bell rings and somebody walks in, you're like, please do not be person. Please do not be here to see me. Please. Don't be. And you're watching where they go in the store. And then they go off to like the, you know, the, the, you know, whatever the kids section. You're like, thank God, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, yes, I got out of there uh, without having to speak on a big zero attendance. Wow. All right. Well, you heard it here. Even Amor Tolls has had a zero. Craig Mazin with a crazy Anthony Hopkins story. How about the craziest casting story you've been or ever been involved with? You know, there's that sort of speaking of Indiana Jones, there's that funny one of, you know, it was going to be Tom Selleck, but then he had a conflict right. with Magna P.I. So it's Indiana. It's uh, Harrison Ford playing Indiana Jones. Any any crazy uh, casting stories? Yeah, there there are some crazy ones, although the one that comes to mind immediately is I um, occasionally help out my friend Rob McElhaney on his show Mythic Quest, which is on Apple and it's fantastic. And for the first episode of the second season, they had this animated opening and they needed somebody with like a great voice to narrate it. And he called me because they like, they were in trouble and they had basically like, it, we have to figure this out today. And so we tossed a few names and then I was like, what about Anthony Hopkins? He's like, that would be great. So I called my lawyer who represents Anthony Hopkins. And I think honestly, like three hours later, Anthony Hopkins had received the thing, read it, and then it went into the show. So sometimes, like, sometimes that's how things happen. Yeah. Incredibly slow or incredibly fast. <laughs> that's great. It's yeah, it either draws you in or it's, or it's all resistance. That's great. Jenny Jackson juggling work and motherhood. Can you talk about speaking of incomes and maybe double incomes or not? Can you talk about the working mom piece? So you are yeah. obviously a, a hardworking mom. You've yeah. got a couple jobs now. Yeah. And there were some interesting passages in the book where, you know, women, I mean, there's no getting around carrying the baby and and maybe a second baby only months after the first one is born and, uh, you're, you know, you're pregnant again. And it's tough to hold on the job at Goldman Sachs or, or whatever it is. And so really hard decisions have to be made. And then, you know, you sort of live with those decisions and, and kind of get in that routine. And I thought you captured that well in a couple of conversations in the, in the book. You, so talk about your own experience, I guess, with it and as well as the book. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, I think I've been lucky in that I work in book publishing where there are a lot of women. And so you would think that it would have been easier for me than it was for most. And maybe it was easier for me than it was for most, but it was still really hard. It was hard to go back to work with, you know, a three month old. I wanted to, I wanted her to continue to have breast milk. And so you had to like have appointments in the nurse's office to go down. And if you got stuck on a call and you missed your appointment, then like you were just going to be uncomfortable for the rest of the day and not mm -hmm. able to, to pump. I mean, and it was like, this is, forgive me if this is an overshare, but I think it's a super funny story. So there's this other 
another editor. Um, she and I were friends. We worked for two different groups. So we were competitive. She was working for the Crown Group and I was working for the Knopf Group. And um, we, we went head to head a lot of times trying to pursue the same projects. We both came back from maternity leave around the same time and we were both on the schedule for, mm-hmm. um, for using the nurse's room to pump. And so I had in this hot manuscript, I really, really wanted to put a bid down on it. Like time was of the essence, but I had to get my pump window because if I didn't run down there and just get like, you know, 15 minutes to myself, my whole day was going to be ruined. So I dashed down there and like the door is locked and I'm like, oh my God, what somebody else is like in my spot. And so I'm waiting there, waiting there, waiting there. 15 minutes later, she comes out. It's it's my friend. And I'm like, hey, she's like, oh, sorry, like crazy day. I'm like, no worries. We've all been there. So I go in, I take my 15 minutes, run upstairs, throw my cooler in the fridge, jump back on my computer. And the agent has written and she says, I'm so sorry, but I have accepted a preempt from Alexis at the Crown Group. So the book is no longer up for, up for option. Oh. Oh my gosh. She had stolen my pumping appointment and then she stole my book. <laughs> that and and you're sort of probably underrested like you're in no condition to get, you know, totally. double hits of bad totally. news. Totally. I just felt like, "Oh my god, I cannot win." And of course, you know, like I do some traveling for work, so there were, you know, the times of like having to leave a, you know, a book event mid-session and run and like store some milk in like a cooler behind a hotel mm-hmm. desk. I mean, it's just the world is not it's not designed for a working mom. It's, like we're trying, really but we're not, not there. It's so so not an overshare at all. In fact, I'm right there with you and my wife went back to work after, you know, all of our our babies, I don't know, around 12 weeks or something like that. And um but wanted to keep doing the breast milk thing for like a year for each of them. And I have to say, it's like, <laughs> I was in there, I'm like, honey, this is like so bovine. I mean, the, the pump is kind of loud and yes. makes like the, the sort of repeated, almost like sounds like a moo, yes. you know? Yes. <laughs> it just goes on. And it's like, so she's doing it in the office, but from inside her office, you could hear it out in the hallway. So oh people gosh. would walk by, they're like, what is that crazy noise? It's right. like driving me insane. And it's like, it's her <laughs> breast milk pump. It's like, mom, mom, mom. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I would, do, uh, I would try and multitask because I'm not going to sit there. I can't waste like, you know, if you do 20 minutes a day, three times a day, I'm not going to waste an hour of my work day. So I was multitasking. So I'd be on a call and somebody on the conference call would be like, does anybody here, is there, do we have a bad connection? I'd be like, nope, not on my end. And I'm like, oh my God, it's totally the pump, whatever. <laughs> Jess Walter, again with the classic, least attended book event ever. Fewest people, that every writer, even oh. even you, the esteemed Jess Walter, must, everyone has a humbling story about this. Fewest people ever to attend one of your book events. Can I tell a quick story about this? Yes. Please. Okay. Uh, I show up, it's in LA, the bookstore owner says, we've been having terrible luck with events and it's raining. I forgot to put you in the, in the uh, bullet and I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to get my first skunking. I'm going to get my first zero because I've had threes and I mean, I've had some really small numbers, but I walk around the corner and there are two guys sitting in the, in the 18 folding chairs at the bookstore and I'm like, oh, thank God there are two guys here. So my name is Jess Walters, my second novel, Land of the Blind. It's ostensibly a, 
uh, crime novel, but it's really a coming of age. You guys don't speak English, do you? And they just smiled at me. Oh, no way. They were there for an English as a second language class that would go to this bookstore, and they would walk around, and, and they just saw some chairs and sat down. And But the bookstore owner's in back, and I'm like, I don't want her to know that I'm skunked, that I have my first zero. So I gave probably the best reading of my life to those guys. And they didn't buy a book, but they applauded afterwards. And no one in the English language heard it. Dang, no, if we could only no. get that back. Yeah. Yeah, so I, so I guess somewhere between two and zero is the answer. Okay. Yeah. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. At Amica Insurance... We know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Elliot Ackerman with a surprise pick for the best war film ever made. Best war film ever made. Uh, yeah. This is a tough one. Um, so, I mean, you could go like uh, Full Metal Jacket and Platoon, Patton, you know, uh, mm-hmm. Coppola uh, movie. Scott yeah, Patton, written, yeah, written by, you know, Coppola's big movie. That was his breakout movie. He wrote the screenplay for Patton. Um I tell you, I got to land on Tropic Thunder. <laughs> That's great. Oh. All right. I that mean, was just tro- in the news recently, weren't they? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, Tropic, you know, you, you, I mean, everyone's <laughs> written about the pity of war, and I get it. And, like, it is a well-trod subject, that I'm, and I'm there, you know, but, like, well, it's a you know, no, people cast, don't want to talk, got... like, you know, war's funny sometimes. Hate to break it to you. Like, you know, it's, it can be funny. Like, I remember being deployed. Like, we watched Tropic Thunder, like, over and over again. I've watched it, and afterward, I someone said, oh, yeah, Tom Cruise is great. And I'm like, Tom Cruise wasn't in that. What are you talking about? Oh, my God. <laughs> Genius, right? They're like, no, he was that guy. I'm yeah, like, yeah, yeah. what? He was that guy? Yeah. Um, it might you know, be his greatest role. I mean, I remember watching I remember watching 
Team America on a bootleg DVD in Iraq in the fall of 2004. <laughs> I mean, just like dying. Like, you're like, it's us, you know, like laughing. So, um, so I have a very special place in my heart for, for, for Tropic Thunder Team America. Awesome. I did not great. see that one coming. That's great. But that was a great movie. I really enjoyed that yeah. too. Especially, I, and I, I maintain Tom Cruise's greatest performance. Chris Bojalian, the avid cyclist. Best place in the world for a cycling trip other than Vermont? In the, um, between 2004 and 2012, I used to summer in Italy and bike in Tuscany. And I love, love, love to bike in Tuscany, but I gotta tell you, I also loved biking in Vietnam and mountain biking in Cambodia. How do those three stack up to Vermont? I gotta tell you, as much as I love Vermont, and I hope my Vermont friends will forgive me, Italy is the best place in the world to bike. Yeah. We went to... You can uh, bike 12 months a year, well, almost 12 months a year. We went to the Amalfi Coast a year ago, and uh, I don't know if you've been there, but it's like cliffside thing, and so there's these crazy switchback roads that are death to... I mean, it's amazing yeah. that anyone survives these roads. There are buses going down it, but the road is about eight feet wide. And I love people, biking them. There are people biking on there. It's incredible. That you would did be that? Yeah. Oh, my um, God. And I got to tell okay. You're lucky to be here. Can I leave the lightning round for a split second? Please. Okay. So, years ago, I'm biking up one of those switchbacks, like, you know, eight switchbacks going up a hill. Because, you know, it's Monte something. Everything in Tuscany is Montalcino, Montepulciano. So, I see ahead of me a bike tour, and I'm all alone. And I'm thinking to myself, they're going really slowly. I'm going to kick ass. I'm going to catch them. I'm going to be like, you know, the alpha guy on the bike. And so I put it into super gear and I'm really, really pumping hard. And I realize I want to catch them. As I'm getting closer, I'm beginning to realize they really are going slowly. And I catch them before the top. And I've just caught a German senior citizens biking group. And they are biking <laughs> mountain bikes in Birkenstocks. I have literally caught people twice my age on mountain bikes. I hope you talk some smack, at least, on your way by. I had a great time with them at the top. They were wonderful <laughs> because, you know, I'm the idiot American who only speaks English. And, of course, they're European, so they speak 17 languages, including English. We had a great time at the top. Oh, fun. I've, I've got to get into cycling. It's a, it's a great way to stay in shape and see the world and it clear is. your head and all, all many good things. If you come to Vermont, I'll rent your bike and we'll have a great time. Deal. I'm there. Melissa Francis throws down the gauntlet. Are you Team Tom Brady or Team Giselle? Team Tom or Team Giselle? Oh my God, are you kidding? Is anyone Team Giselle? Give me a break. I mean, Team Tom. First of all, this is the first time my husband has been a Tampa Bay Buccaneers fan his whole entire life. So my, like the start of my week has always been tainted by how good or bad they play on Sunday. Needless to say, it has been tough being married yeah. to a Buccaneers fan. Finally, I mean, I have loved Tom Brady since the beginning of time. I mean, since his college days. So for the first time, we are both rooting for Tom Brady for the right reasons. I would also say that we've met Giselle a number of times, a number of times. And it's always in a different setting that's really distressing. Um, one was my 30th birthday. We were in Mexico and we were on this beach at this resort and it was like my dream for my 30th birthday we're going to go away and we're going to be in this resort and it had just opened and I feel this person behind me posing and posing and Ray looks over my shoulder I turn around there's Giselle in a g-string posing for the Victoria's Secret swimsuit 
catalog. They're shooting the catalog at my 30th birthday. Women out there. Can you imagine anything more awful than having all of the Victoria's Secret catalog at your 30th birthday? And well, I mean, they were, were my 30th. Right, I could... yes. So Ray's like texting his friends. He's like, oh my God, you'll never believe it. They're all flying down to Mexico. I'm like, my birthday is ruined. Meanwhile, the resort had just opened. So it was us and all of the angels at every bar, at every... At the restaurant, like there was no one at the resort except for us and like Ariana Lima, Giselle Bunchen. Oh anyway, my gosh. she was smoking a cigarette for lunch, of course. Um, she was complaining about how cold the water was. She was basically miserable through the whole entire thing, and she ruined my birthday. So I've never been on Team Giselle. We saw her later. At, we were at this um, resort in Big Sur. She arrived with Leonardo DiCaprio. Mm-hmm. She didn't remember us from the other events. So I've had a beef with Giselle for a long time, and right. I'm majorly team tom brady and ray is the same um unclear yeah he might have a soft um, depends, spot for yeah Giselle, you know, i the, think he the cigarette and the thong i'm there i think he would probably say he's team tom and i think if i'm not there he's probably team giselle no, but funny. he knows better than to say that in front. in a position to know rick springfield declares the greatest rock band frontman of all time how about your pick for greatest guitarist of all time uh, Jeff Beck uh, would have Jeff to be Beck. probably probably the most stunning player. Um, Hendrix, I I would pick up there, but Jeff Beck, uh, Hendrix is very it was blues based and uh, and he was amazing at it. And a lot of his his stuff is stuff that was played before, but it's his just his feel and his songwriting and his performance. He was just such a complete. I mean, he's a looks so hot on stage with the guitar. He wears the guitar better than anybody else. And uh, it just so fits him. And, and I, I love this. I watch, love to watch him live. He looks, he just, the guitar is just part of his body. Um, and he had these giant fingers and it makes it look like the guitar neck is like two inch, you know, an inch wide or something. But, it, uh, but Beck, I, I never could figure out how he was doing what he was doing. I was a fan of his when I was 16, when he was in the Yardbirds. And he was doing amazing stuff. And he just kept growing and growing until this, the, the stuff he was doing at the end was just just mind-blowingly different. It, there's nothing like it. No player like him or will ever be a player like him. Oh, that's great. I, I love hearing artists talk about other artists in that way. You just get a more insightful view into what makes them special and different. You know, Because from a layperson, you, you know, I see someone do an incredible guitar riff, and I can't tell the difference between, you know, great and genius you know yeah. it's all just no, sort of I, one of the other I, me i i get that i can play fast on the guitar but it's not you know but eddie van halen could play fast could play everything fast and, and was amazing and and yeah. and jeff beck i can't even begin to uh to know to figure out how he did what he did he would play he dropped his pick one day and figured he could he play with his fingers so he started playing with his fingers instead of a guitar pick and he uses this whammy bar really uniquely he had the most amazing control of the whammy bar he could play whole lines just with the whammy bar which is incredible and um yeah i just love him do you have I, a thought on, on greatest uh greatest rock front man or front woman uh, Roger Daltrey or uh, mm. or Robert Plant, I, I would say. Um, Daltrey became w- was interesting because he changed all. Th- he was started out as this like Shepherd's Bush punk, 
that, you know, had a problem with everything and just looked like he was, you know, had to sing these songs almost like regretfully. Uh, with but but when Tommy came out and he assumed the role of Tommy, it totally changed and <clears throat> became this real amazing front man with he let his hair grow and he was had his chest real cut and and um and I think Robert Plant actually copped quite a bit from uh from Roger Daltrey's initial uh, look for Tommy. So uh, and overall, he's just very they're both really exciting to watch as frontmen. Mm -hmm. Um. There are, you know, there's great frontmen. They're they're my favorites just because uh, of the music. But uh, you know, you can't. I mean, oh, it's just an opinion. You know, it's not. Uh, yeah. Well, it's interesting uh, to see you know you know that sort of how they can influence one another. I think I read an article once that Mick Jagger was influenced by James Brown, and you can kind of trace back. Dude, I, my manager was uh, Steve Binder when I first came over here from Australia. He was the one who directed the Elvis Presley special, right? The one that brought Elvis back. And he did a movie called Tammy, Teenage Music International, that, that was uh, shot at the Santa Monica Civic. And it had Smokey Robinson, Jerry and the Pacemakers, James Brown had the Rolling Stones, one of their first appearances, um, and a bunch of acts. It's an amazing show, it really is. Everybody sounds great. But James Brown came on and was dancing like you know, doing all this foot stuff. And Steve said that Mick Jagger was back in the dressing room stoned and freaking out because James, because, you know, they were love James Brown. And they said, oh, my God, but, you know, he's so awesome. So Mick Jagger went on and he starts doing all this foot stuff that copies James Brown. You can see it on the show. It's amazing. And that's kind of almost where his whole, you know, his whole dancing as a front man became. He's a great front man, too. Amazing front man. I, I definitely name him up there, too. Dennis Lehane with the classic least attended book event ever. Next question. Even a big star like you was once not. So, uh, you know, back in the 90s, you're selling books out of the trunk of your car and things like that. The least attended book event you've ever put on. <laughs> I did one in Austin, Texas. Um, and uh, th three people showed up. One guy was just homeless and he was just trying to get out of the weather. And the other two people were there because they had the same last name and they wanted to know if we were related. <laughs> and then I said, so you guys don't expect me to read, do you? And they were like, well, yeah. And so I had to read to three people. <laughs> the, the guy easily could have been one of your cousins from Boston that you hadn't hadn't noticed. Yeah, could have, yeah. but that was, that was the one. That was a good one. Anna Quinlan with a beautiful piece of advice for all of us. One piece of good advice for the listeners. And while you're thinking of that, I'll, I'll interject, if I may, with mine, which is people should go out and buy A Short Guide to a Happy Life by Anna Quinlan and read it over. But you, you can't steal mine, which I just stole from you. One piece of good advice. Look around. Really look around. There comes a moment, and it comes too soon, usually when we're maybe 12, 13, 14 when we stop seeing what's around us. We stop seeing the people we love. We stop seeing the natural world around us. Um, we just stop seeing. So I would say... That's it. Why? Because we're in a busy and in a rush and we need to slow down? I, I think things get dulled after a while. Hmm. You know, I mean, all you have to do to realize how important it is, is watch a four-year-old. I mean, when you watch a four-year-old looking at an anthill, you suddenly see an anthill in a way you haven't since you were four years old. And then the sense is dull. And 
I think one of the ways to understand what a what a privilege it is to be alive, because it really is, um, is to really look at the world. Oh, I love that. That's great advice. And now you can settle into a real treat and get a free listen to the prologue of The Mysterious Case of Rudolf Diesel. It's the greatest story ever told, and it will change your understanding of world history over the last 120 years. So enjoy the voice of Scott Brick, otherwise known as The Golden Voice, as he reads to you the complete prologue of The Mysterious Case of Rudolf Diesel. October 11th, 1913. There was something in the water. Crew members of the Dutch pilot steamer Kurtzen approached the object that had caught their attention. There, near the mouth of the Skelt River along the eastern edge of the English Channel, in the rippling black, the men on the small vessel realized what they'd seen. It was a body. Though the decomposition was ghastly, the sailors noticed the fine quality of the clothing that still wrapped the body. Pulling the remains alongside the boat, they plucked four items from the pockets of the deceased before releasing the rotting corpse back into the waves. A coin purse, a penknife, an eyeglass case, and an enameled pillbox. The steamer then made its scheduled call to the Dutch port city of Lissingen, where the crew reported the discovery and turned over the items. Harbor officials immediately wondered if the report from the Kurtzen could be connected to the missing person case that had been in the headlines of newspapers in every major city in Europe and America. Officials sent word to the missing man's son, who arrived in Vlissingen from Germany the next day. As soon as he saw the items, Eugen Diesel confirmed that they belonged to his father, Rudolf. Rudolf Diesel the inventor of the revolutionary engine that bears his name, had disappeared almost two weeks earlier during an overnight crossing of the English Channel on his way from Belgium to London. The captain of the passenger ferry had reported Herr Diesel missing at sea, in international waters where there was no legal jurisdiction and no investigatory authority. Since there was no body, there had been no coroner's report. There was no trial by admiralty, nor even a company hearing. There had been no official investigation at all. No ray of light on diesel mystery. German inventor was a millionaire and his home was happy. From the front page of the New York Times, October 2nd, 1913. Rudolf Diesel grew up during an industrial boom. In America, it became known as the Gilded Age. In France, it was called the Belle Epoque. Economies flourished and urban centers developed at unprecedented rates. Through his childhood, Diesel witnessed this expansion from the vantage of an impoverished immigrant. His nomadic family scratched out a living in cities across Europe until a relative recognized the boy's gifted mind and offered him a hand up. At the age of 12, Diesel took the modest opportunity for an education and made the most of it. With natural ability and the determination of the most desperate, 
He excelled at his studies, and by his early twenties he inhabited the most revered circle of engineers in Germany. His scientific peers were Edison, Tesla, Bell, Marconi, Ford, Einstein, the Wright brothers, names that would achieve cultural immortality. These geniuses delivered innumerable advances in science, spawned new industries, and destroyed existing ones have been the subject of books, films, and other tributes, and have been the shoulders upon which countless others have stood. Yet, Rudolf Diesel is missing from this list. Throughout history, the world has often adopted technological advances in ways the inventor never imagined, and certainly never intended. The advances wrought by Diesel and his contemporaries changed their world from a place of decentralized rural economies to a place of mass industry, from the age of steam power to the age of oil, from battles fought at close range between men bludgeoning each other to mechanized warfare. As empires, both political and corporate, applied revolutionary technologies to accelerate their advance, the unintended consequences of an inventor's brainchild could wreak havoc and terror. In the time before Diesel's engine became ubiquitous, the great battleships such as the British Dreadnought and the great passenger ships like the Lusitania and Titanic were equipped with steam engines. The steam technology pioneered by James Watt was as old as America, and was the genesis of the Industrial Revolution. Shipbuilders installed a giant boiler filled with water, a coal-burning furnace stoked by teams of men to turn the water to steam. The steam pressure turned the gears of the engine, and finally, a chimney and funnel that released black towers of smog from the coal furnace. It was rudimentary technology. A ship raising steam from the cool water in the boiler of an idle engine took hours to get underway, and the tons of coal needed to feed the furnace took up valuable cargo space. The dozens of men living on the ship to shovel the coal took up more space and needed to be fed as well. The massive and inefficient engines required the ships to hop from port to port around the globe to acquire more coal announcing their advance with a smoke-stained sky visible for a hundred miles. The diesel engine didn't require hours to boil water. It operated immediately from a cold start. Nor did it require teams of men to stoke the fires, but simply drew liquid fuel automatically from a tank. The compact engine had no boiler, no furnace, nor chimney apparatus at all. Diesel burned a viscous fuel that had no fumes, was safe to store, and the engine consumed its fuel so efficiently that a ship could circumnavigate the globe without stopping to refuel, and it did so with no discernible exhaust to give away the ship's presence on the horizon. What's more, the fuel for a diesel engine came from the natural resources that were abundant nearly everywhere. Diesel's design was a quantum leap forward in humankind's ability to convert a substance into power. His engine became the most disruptive technology in history. Diesel intended for his compact, safe, and efficient engine 
to lift up rural and urban economies alike, to do the work previously done by the backs of men, to advance the quality of life for all. But his intention was not to be. When Rodolf Diesel went missing in 1913, the major newspapers from New York to Moscow ran front-page stories about the great scientist's disappearance. Though suicide by drowning was the working theory, the press also advanced the theory of foul play and named two of the most famous men on the planet as the prime suspects. One theory pointed to the German emperor, Kaiser Wilhelm II, and his agents, hypothesizing that the Kaiser was so enraged by Diesel's rumored business dealings with the British that he had ordered the inventor's murder. One headline read, Inventor thrown into the sea to stop sale of patents to the British government. The other high-profile person who some suggested could be behind Diesel's death was the world's richest man, John D. Rockefeller. Rockefeller and his cohorts viewed Diesel's revolutionary technology, an engine that didn't require gasoline or any product derived from crude oil, to be an existential threat to their business empires. Another headline claimed that Rudolf Diesel was murdered by agents from big oil trusts. In death, Rudolf Diesel, the genius inventor, was at the center of a great mystery. Only one year earlier, in 1912, major figures on the world stage had lauded the emergence of Diesel's game-changing technology. Thomas Edison pronounced the diesel engine one of the great achievements of mankind. Winston Churchill, an early admirer and advocate of diesel motors, declared a new class of diesel-powered cargo ship to be the most perfect maritime masterpiece of the century. Now, Rudolf Diesel, the man whom the famed British journalist W.T. Stead described in 1912 as the great magician of the world was gone. In an industrial age, nothing moves without a motor. It is the beating heart of nations, and no inventor was more disruptive to the established order than Rudolf Diesel. The terrible irony is that Rudolf Diesel abhorred the societal evolutions that his engine wrought. He opposed economic centralization to urban centers. He despised global dependence on the oil monopolies, and he loathed mechanized warfare. His aim from the start had been to invent a compact and economical source of power to revitalize the artisan class and liberate the factory workers of the industrial age. He envisioned an engine that burned the natural resources that nearly all countries possessed, and did so cleanly ridding the earth of smogging pollutants. The story of Rudolf Diesel's effort to change the world is one of the most important of the 20th century, yet most people know little about it. His engine has persisted and thrived through the decades, and, incredibly, the fundamental concept of the engine's design is practically the same today as the engine Rudolf first unveiled in 1897 but the man seems deliberately scrubbed from history, so much so that Diesel is often misspelled with a lowercase d. When has Ford been spelled with a lowercase f?
Chrysler, or Benz. Today, people around the world pass within a few yards of the word diesel many times each day. Written on the side of a passenger train, a marine engine, at a fueling station, or on one of the 500 million diesel motor vehicles traveling the roads. Ward's Auto estimates there were 1.4 billion automobiles in the world as of 2020. Approximately 35% of these are diesel. This excludes off-road and heavy machinery, almost all of which are powered by diesel. But few know that the word refers to a person. That he started out an impoverished immigrant. That he seized a sliver of opportunity to escape London's slums. That he believed in the rigors of capitalism and also stood for peace, equality, the artisan class, a clean environment, and humane working conditions in an era of increasing exploitation that he believed an engineer had a dual role as both a scientist and social theorist. Diesel's genius set him on a collision course with an emperor and a tycoon. The result of this collision changed the course of the Great War and the fate of the modern world, yet history has failed to recognize that these figures are intertwined. Four people are key to understanding the quarter century leading up to the Great War. John D. Rockefeller, Kaiser Wilhelm II, Winston Churchill, and, overlooked until now, Rudolf Diesel. By walking the paths of these men in the decades before the war and connecting facts previously thought to be unrelated, a shroud of mystery dissolves to reveal the truth about Rudolf Diesel's fate. On September 28, 1913, the day before he disappeared, Diesel penned a letter to his wife, Marta. In his final hours before boarding the passenger ferry Dresden bound for London, he wrote, Do you feel how I love you? I would think that even from a great distance you must feel it, as a gentle quivering in you as the receiver of a wireless telegraph machine. One day later, Diesel was gone. While his disappearance and the eventual discovery of his body were front-page news for a time, earth-shaking events were unfolding that would push all else aside. It was the eve of a global conflict that would see 32 nations declare war and claim 40 million casualties. Investigators ceased to pursue the peculiar actions of the players involved in Diesel's last days. The press failed to resolve the conflicting news reports in the weeks after his disappearance. The outbreak of brutal calamity only months after Diesel's presumed suicide demanded attention to the exclusion of nearly everything else. And the world forgot about Rudolf Diesel. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. 
At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home, the place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica, empathy is our best policy.